Hello and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 337, recorded May 23rd, 2023. And I am Brian Aachen. And I'm Michael Kennedy. Um, I want to thank um, thank everybody that's watching, but anybody that's listening, uh, I encourage you to at least once in a while drop by um, YouTube and see the upcoming list of events at pythonbytes.fm slash live to be part of the audience. It's usually fun. It's usually Tuesdays at 11 Pacific time. Um, uh, occasionally we switch. Um, if you'd like to connect with us, we're, we're all on Fostodon or the, at least the three of us, yeah, Michael and I on the show. It's M. Kennedy at Fostodon and at Brian Aachen and at Python Bytes. Um, and uh, with that, let's jump into our first topic. Let's jump into it. It's not going to be a rough one, is it? <laughs> so the first topic is rough, which is obviously, uh, you know, um, Charlie Marsh's project. It's very successful. People know that it's not exactly rough. It's a way to use rough. And this one comes to us from John Hagen. And John, John runs this project called Python Blueprint. And so he's been playing around a lot with that project and um, PyCharm and Ruff and realized that now there's a plugin for all the JetBrains IDEs, most notably PyCharm, called uh, just Ruff. And the idea is that, you know, PyCharm has all these little squigglies and warnings and maybe even more importantly, the auto corrections. So it'll do things like if... Um, you wanted to replace double quotes or single quotes, you can just hit alt enter and it'll suggest, hey, why don't we just do that for you, all right? Things like that. And so this integrates all the rough functionality into that same basic UI system, right? You get little warnings or errors on the screen based on rough output. So it has inspection and highlighting. It can set it up so it runs rough on your code when you run reformat code or just hit the hotkey, Command-Alt-L, Control-Alt-L. It has the quick fixes that I was just talking about, and it will actually run, you can run rough dash dash fix as an action, and you can even run that when a file is saved just automatically. Like, hey, if there's stuff wrong with it, just fix it rough, just do that for me. You can configure which version of Ruff is running. So basically the plugin lets you specify, do you use a global one, maybe managed by pip x? Do you use a local one in a virtual environment? I sort of feel like isolating that to a per project basis is the right thing. So that's what I'm doing, playing with this. And yeah, you can run it as a new process. You can specify a config option, like a, a is that YAML. I'm not sure what the format that is, but whatever the rough config file format is so that you can say, you know what? I don't really care about the line length <laughs> for this thing. So just ignore that and don't ever run that and so on. So yeah, you can even run it out of a WSL, Windows subsystem for Linux. And there's some nice screenshots as all UI things should have <laughs> in there. You can even see some of the settings if you want to try it out. So it has 4.8 out of five ratings and it looks pretty new, but yeah. Anyway, I think it looks like a good option. So people can check that out also. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. I've, I've installed it and gonna give it a try. You can go check out the, it's open source, obviously. So you can go check out uh, basically the, the repo for the plugin. And John sent over to us and I'm linking to uh, this thing where it says, um, you can add additional PyCharm specific instructions for both black and rough. So he's got this section that shows you basically how to in, uh, 
integrate both Black and Rough at the same time as automatic code formatters in PyCharm using the File Watchers plugin. So just follow along with the steps there. It even has Knox support, but yeah, cool. So if that sounds interesting to you, if you want to have kind of auto rough <laughs> just built into PyCharm and use PyCharm, then yeah, check this out. It looks cool. Thanks, John. Yeah, that's nice. Um, <laughs> and rough, of course, is written in Rust. Uh, and I'd like to talk a little bit more about Rust. Um, so there was a an article I ran across called, uh, it's from Koblo's blog. Don't know who. That's a first name or last name, but thanks, Koblos. Um, writing Python like it's Rust, and uh, what I, I I haven't written written Rust yet, but a little bit anyway. the The thing I liked about this article was really basically he's uh, going from Rust back to Python uh, programming in both, and one of the things he misses is some of the some of the safety that types give you. So um, he's f discovered that he's changing or they're changing how they're using um using types within python and i kind of liked some of the suggestions i think these are some of the things i i didn't even think of before the obvious one of course is uh for function signatures so we really want to uh if it's not obvious like uh, there's an example with a find item with records and check but what is you know, what is that uh, what are those types of those things so it's really uh, helpful to your call the people using your API to uh, to specify what the what the parameters look like or what you expect them to look like and there's so many options within uh, Python now and uh, also that uh, to you know uh, return value and here is an example it's an um, optional item so I actually hadn't thought about that of like using optional as a return type that's pretty cool which means you can uh, either, and you could probably do like item or none to say it can return none or something. Um, that's a, I, it is good to, especially if it's something, if it, if it's possible to return none, it's good to have that in the types. Um, so that's, a, that's a, the low hanging fruit. Um, that's, I think a lot of people have gotten there yet already. The other, uh, the other thing that I found recently is um, I've got some types that are like tuples or, dictionaries or specifically a specific kind of dictionary like a string string to any or a, or even um, I use named tuples a lot which are a little bit better than uh, just your normal types but um, but the rec his recommendation is uh, to go ahead and use data classes because um, they're more descriptive even if it's similar information you can write up a little data class and then uh, like in the example instead of saying that you you're returning a dictionary, go ahead and return like a, a, a person item, um, uh, specific types. And I'm kind of used to that from C++ of like writing little types because they're more, they're more descriptive and they're easier to read sometimes. So uh, bringing this into, uh, into Python is kind of a cool idea. Um, the other, uh, one of the things I thought was really awesome is this idea. There's an example using the, where he's using like these packet types and, uh, um, since I work with communications a lot, this, uh, this, really hit home of you have you have you can a packet might be either a header or a payload or a trailer this is a rust example but you can do the same sort of thing within python to say i can have different data types um using data classes to specify what kind of information you're going to get from these and then you can create a union type and have that have that be a different name uh but related to everything and i i kind of love this idea of using a union type instead of instead of using the ors i mean using or for types is good too but 
um, uh, combining that into a union type is pretty s slick. Yeah, yeah, that is pretty interesting. I like that. It's so is that if you're going to receive, say, a packet off a network and it had first the header bit and then the payload and then the trailer or something like that? Yeah, or um, like a, a function that takes that can like count the bits in there or something like that. And it, and it can it. either be a header or a payload or a trailer. Um, you could uh, do something different with those and having a union type is pretty, pretty cool. Um, now, uh, within it, um, I'm not, and here's an example of what, how do you do with that, deal with that. You'd still with inside, you'd have to either do pattern matching or if clauses, I've been using a lot more pattern matching lately, uh, to be able to just, you know, this is, this is great for you take the packet type, but, um, then you can match it against, uh, either a header or payload or trailer. This is a really clean way to have union types and then unpack them with the pattern matching. Uh, it's, it's a pretty cool way to deal with that. So Yeah, um, that is actually pretty clean. That's one of the better examples of pattern matching that that I've seen lately. Um, cool. And this is just like a third of the article, but it, uh, the rest of it does talk about different ways to... Uh, basically, we have a lot of these tools within, our, uh, within Python now to make it more to utilize uh, data types um, uh, that we were used to in, in other languages. Um, and you can kind of write some really clean looking code and easier to read. So it's nice. Yeah. Very nice. I like it. So Kim out there has a question in the audience. Brian, is there possibly some overlap with writing Python after writing a bunch of C as you do, as in same way Rust leads to some good ideas in Python? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's this, this is a, this person's writing it from the experience of Rust, but I'm looking at it going, this is a lot of the C++ stuff that I use. So um, it, it is, uh, it, yeah, I'm, I'm looking at it. We're, we're actually, my team is, being, is having a lot more fun with Python with the pattern matching statement because the, uh, I know it can do a lot more stuff, but it really does, uh, even if you're just using it to, um, to get away from a, a long list of if clauses, uh, and make it more like a switch statement. It is so much nicer. Uh, it's one of the yeah. low, low, easy bits. So that's a good example. Yeah, Marco out there says, been doing a lot of rust, missing mismatch as well. All right, shall we move on? Sure. Um, All right, well, go ahead Go ahead with your first. Uh, I know you had an announcement as well you wanted to give out. No, I was just wondering, do we want uh, to, today's episode is not brought to you by an external sponsor, but it's brought to you by us. And, uh, it is brought to you by us. And I'd like to uh, hear um, some of the news from Michael. Well, the big news for me, which I have sort of put in as an extra now and then, is the mobile apps. So people go out there, download the mobile apps, talkbython.fm slash apps. And in there, if you create an account or log in with your account, at a minimum, you'll find like six different courses that are free. You just tap on them and you can take those courses right away within the mobile apps. If you get this super, super quickly, if you're one of the very, very prompt listeners, there's a chance that our Git course actually is free as well as part of a celebration of the mobile app launch. But that lasts for about eight hours from the time of recording, which will be a few less hours from the time I actually release this to the general public, not in the live stream. So you'll have to act fast on that one. But do check out the mobile apps if you're interested in Python courses. They're a great way to take it. They have some free ones, and they also are the best way to take ones that you paid for as well. So four months of work. Finally, uh, really, really nice apps that we got out there. I'm listening to a couple, uh, watching and listening to a couple a couple courses right now. Um, not 
right now, but uh, <laughs> in in some of my free time, I love the the mobile app. It's working great. Awesome, thanks. And you also have a thing to shout out as well, right? Yeah, I wanted to um, uh, let people know I wrote a book. <laughs> no. <laughs> You all know that. Um, but the exciting bit, I just got this email this morning. So uh, my book, Python Testing with PyTest, second edition, um, I've had a lot of great feedback of saying, uh, I, I didn't, people saying uh, they read the first one and it was good, but the second one really nailed, uh, they really got some of the concepts in. So I'm glad that I wrote the second. So uh, the, the news, I just got this this morning, an email from Pragmatic saying that there is a sale right now. So well, there's a whole bunch of other books, but Python Testing with PyTest is one of them. And if you use the uh, coupon code SPRING2023, um, and you can save 50% off of the ebook. And that's up, that expires June 1st. So don't delay. Spring 2023. So awesome. Spring into some testing. <laughs> um, well, that's us. Uh, how about a new topic? Yeah. Thank you, everyone, for supporting the show by supporting our work. Let's talk about PIP. So this is about a month old. I've been looking to uh, grab a slot to talk about it, but there's been other sort of higher important stuff. But I do want to point this out. So Zertex over on Reddit, who if you follow over to the GitHub and then from GitHub thing to Twitter, maybe named Damien, not entirely clear, so I want to give credit, but it's not easy to do, <laughs> says that PIP 23 or points out that PIP 23.1 was released with massive improvements to backtracking. And backtracking is an algorithm that is part of the requirements resolver. So if you say, you know, pip install, requests, flask, and, you know, something else, pip has to say, okay, well, we know what those are, but both requests and flask may depend on some library. I don't think that's true, but I don't think there's an intersection there, but, you know, follow along. If, if they did, then it's got to figure out, well, okay, Flask requires this range of versions and request requires that range. So let me find a version that will satisfy both of those requirements, right? And there might be a, a transitive dependency upon that, right? Like that that um, shared, potentially shared library itself has another thing that it depends on. So the article, or not article, Reddit post says, you know, for example, let's say uh, you require package A and B, the latest versions of A and B are downloaded, PIP checks their requirements, and it finds that A depends on C version two, but B depends on C version one. And so it's got to figure out like, well, can I go back and get a older version of A that would allow say C equals one to work, right? So prior to PIP uh, 20.3, the default process would allow PIP to install re conflicting requirements with a warning saying that eh, this may or may not go well, we couldn't find one that was a good fit, but that's no longer an option. I have very mixed feelings about that. I love that it tries to be more strict and correct, but at the same time, the alternative or the trade-off is we guarantee correctness 100% of the time in terms of a version match for all the transitive dependencies across all the different things. And instead of saying, we'll install something that doesn't work or may, may not work because there might be some functionality that you may or may not interact with that is incompatible version-wise, we're just going to say your application cannot run. It's impossible for your app to use these dependencies and run. Personally, I would prefer to say, huge warning, this is not a great idea, but at least you can take a shot at it rather than it's impossible for you to run this application. Mm. But, you know, that's that's the trade-off Pip made. And because of that, it has to be even better at tracking down um, these version matches um, 
as best it can because the alternative is your application cannot be installed and run. So there's a lot of interesting history here, but it, it talks about um, some of the algorithms that have been used and points out that PIP now separates out the resolution logic into a library called ResolveLib. And it was discovered that there was an error, logical error that both for performance and for correctness um, as well, you know, better uh, backtracking technique called back jumping and an actual error that were fixed and implemented in ResolveLib and now come out in 23.1. So if you're using PIP and if you're listening to us, there's a real good chance that you are. <laughs> You want to upgrade your PIP to 23.1 or higher. Um, I, whenever I install requirements, I just have a, like a multi-step macro or alias. The first thing it does is say PIP install dash dash upgrade PIP. <laughs> now go try to do the other stuff. You know, just it's like a concept for me, but I know not everyone does that. So it, when you see that little warning that says, hey, warning, your PIP is out of date. Uh, if it's less than 23.1, you probably want to um, take... Uh, I don't know, take the advice and up, update it this time. Yeah. Yeah. Just this morning, I got a message. Sorry, we cannot install your website because some, you know, Sentry requires this version of URL Lib 3 and Request requires a different version of URL Lib 3. So you can't run your app. Yeah. Goodbye. It's like, oh, come on. I'm, <laughs> I, I'm sure that it's not actually using the, the conflicting. And I, one thing that this does point out here is, um, traditionally, people haven't had to worry about this, and so they'll you'll you'll see things like um, one of the dependencies will say it has to be exactly like one dot two dot three. When really, what it means is it's got to be later than one dot two, you know. And they've just pinned it overly tight, yeah. And you end up with this crash where you know for for sure that it wouldn't actually be a problem. In your situation, like, how do you know? Well, because before PIP 20.1, it was running, you know, those kinds of things. And so there's this little bit of, you know, I know it was great that it's uh, trying to be more accurate and precise, but sometimes I'd rather have at least an option than none. And so, I don't know, it's, there's a whole interesting discussion down here. People can check it out in the comments. There, it devolves into a debate about Python 2 to 3 for a little while, which is weird. And then just, just skip that. That's not productive reading, but there's some interesting conversations going on there. And also, yeah. before we move on really quick, Brian, there is, um, um, I think it's Damien, as I said, points out that there is an, um, a PEP, PEP 658, which is accepted for, what version of Python is this? I don't know, 2021, so a couple versions ago, that allows the metadata, it used to be that PIP would actually have to download and install a package just to see what the dependencies were. And now that's separated out the metadata so you can get a very simple, small download without trying to do stuff to it to go, what does this actually need? This version needs what? All right. So there's are some improvements that are being brought into here, but still, there we have it. Yeah. A couple of comments, uh, um, which I kind of agree with, it'd be uh, um, from Grant. It'd be nice if it, there was a worn unresolvable or something um, mm -hmm. to keep the old behavior. Maybe. I agree with Grant um, on that, yeah. Um, so um, I want it, I guess this is a reminder to library authors as well that your dependencies, you might know that you you have a, a lower limit on some dependency that you need you need version like 1.2 of this library or above. Think about it. I, th I, I prefer to have uh, libraries pin their dependencies, the trans transitive dependencies in a uh, lower bound and not upper bound uh, version because, yeah, I mean, you don't know what the, the upper bound is, unless you do, unless you, unless there really is, there was a breaking change and you really know that there's a break. Uh, 
Right. The thing for me more is about, which I, I agree with you, Bray, uh, and the comments, but it's about like, there might be an absolute 100% conflict. Like if this library tries to do, so for example, let's say like request tries to use Kerberos authentication instead of basic authentication. And in that scenario, this other library does something crazy. It crashes unless it's high enough. If I'm never using that authentication mechanism, oh, yeah. I'm never going to. So like, yes, it is actually a breaking change, but it's not a breaking change for me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> In the, my use case of that, the combination of those two things, right? Like that's, that's kind of where I've, I've been thinking about this. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, because there's a lot of like uh, a lot of uh, Swiss Army knife libraries out there. And you're not using right, all you of probably, it. Probably it's it's very unlikely you're hitting 100% surface area of a yeah. thing in its dependencies, right? Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, anyway, this is this is an improvement. I feel like we're kind of like debating the twenty point three debate uh, field. <laughs> this is an improvement on the stuff that's already been decided to be done. So uh, twenty three point one is a good way to go. Yeah, that's good. Um, <laughs> last item uh, was a kind of a cool tool called Markdown Code Runner. So um, this uh, this did remind me of a tool that I've known before. So the Markdown Code Runner is a package that automatically executes code blocks within a Markdown file. Um, it's a, it can include hidden code blocks. So you can have uh, the code blocks can be in comments. And so you can't see it in the Markdown file. It just runs it. Um, so it runs the snippet and then you can have the output show up somewhere. Um, so this in the example, uh, let's run to an example. You've got a little um, uh, a code block that says Python, but instead of just Python, you say, you know, you got your back ticks and then you say uh, Python space markdown dash code dash runner. And then it runs the code in the code block and then it pops it out. You've got another co couple comments for output start and output end, and it'll uh, throw the, the output in there. The kind of the neat thing is it's not just for Python, it's for bash also. So you can run some bash scripts. Like if you want to uh, show a, uh, I was thinking if you wanted to show what the 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 directory looked like with the tree command, you can go ahead and run tree uh, uh, within within a markdown file and run it or other stuff. has a, has several uh, examples that they think would be neat. Things like um, oh, co um, I don't know, like uh, diagrams or tables or various things that you might want to output with Python uh, visualizations. You can use that. Uh, yeah, this that's did, really cool. Yeah, it did kind of remind me of Cog, um, but the the syntax is a little different. So uh, Cog from Ned Batchelder has a, is a similar sort of thing. You throw you throw some uh, code in in place with some special tags. He uses like uh, three bracket tags um, instead of an actual code block. Um, so the thing I kind of like about this is a lot of times I actually do want to show the code block. Um, so you can go ahead and show the code block and then run it. So that's neat. So um, some some it's, it's fun. I tried it a little bit. There's an example of using Rust, so you can of uh, actually running Rust. Also, I couldn't get the Rust example to work, but I got the uh, the Markdown and the uh, or the uh, the Python and the uh, the Bash examples to work. So um, actually pretty cool. The within the documentation it also talks about um, running this as a GitLab uh, or a, yeah Git. Uh, GitHub CI uh, snippet. So, um, and that that'd be a great place to do it is to just rerun your rerun like reproduce the code output from your README on the new code. So, kind of cool idea. Yeah, uh, my first thought was, oh, I have a code example, and it says the output is this. Like, rather than 
trying to maintain those, just let it put the output there. But it's also could be useful for just, I have a little Python bit of code that generates some other output that is, is useful, right? Like here's the go through and generate a little, all the topics that it saw in the subdirectory or something like oh, that. Yeah. 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 Like kind of a, just a markdown, like a macro within a markdown. Generated table of contents or something. Yeah, yeah exactly. Something like that. Cool. Cool. That's all of it, right? That's all the main topics. That is our main topics. Yes. All right. I have a few extras to throw out here. Let's jump over there real quick. So, um, same person who uh, pointed out the rough plugin, John Hagen, also pointed out. You know, I had uh, talked previously about how I wish Pip would update itself um, when I create a virtual environment by default. So, if I say Python three m vnv vnv, the very next thing after activating it is your Pip is out of date. I'm like, ah, oh, geez, okay. <laughs> so, hence that's partly why my first thing to do is always upgrade it. Is just did not see the warning more than anything, honestly. But pointed out that since uh, Python 3.9, there's a an additional option you can pass to um, um, the virtual environment creation story. So when, instead of um, just dash M, V, and V in a um, directory, you can also pass dash dash upgrade depends, which will um, automatically do that upgrade of pip and dependencies as well. Pip setup tools to the latest version as oh, part of creating the virtual environment. Sweet. Yeah, so nothing major, but quite nice, right? Yeah, I mean, I usually have that as a second step within my little macro. So thing, do I. So, so do I. <laughs> and I was looking to replace that, and I'm like, you know what? Not quite, because I also want to install things like uh, pip tools and a couple other things uh, that um, this doesn't include. So I'm like, ah, I still would have to write that line, so I'll just leave it. But anyway, still, it's really nice to have uh, dash dash upgrade depths. You wanted to have a shiny new virtual environment all the time. Yeah. And one of the things I really love that came in like a few versions ago is the, um, if you do the dash dash prompt and give it a dot, it yes. uses the directory name. Um, yeah. That's really excellent. It names that. the virtual environment the containing directory name. So it has like the name of the virtual environment is the name of your project often, which is great. Yeah. Yep. All right. More things, more extras. Uh, one is PyCon South Africa. PyCon Z, uh, ZA will be held in Durban. And the um, most important part here is that um, the call for proposals is out. Um, and when is the time frame? Kim will have to let us know. I know he's out in the audience. But yeah, um, oh, here we go. Talks need to be submitted by August 18th, 2023. And it's pretty good. I think it's both virtual and in person. Uh, so some good options for people to attend um, in, down in October. And it's pretty convenient for Africa, Europe, much of Asia, although less so for, you know, you and me, Brian. <laughs> That's all right. That's all right. Yeah, cool. So people, if they want to talk at PyCon South Africa, um, be sure to uh, submit that talk. And... Kim well, says that that's a soft deadline, but sooner is better. Okay. Gen generally true. I got a friend that's in the cybersecurity uh, uh, area and he's up all night anyway. Um, so maybe Yeah, there you go. Help. Yeah, you could definitely do it if you just live off hours. Yeah. Uh, real quick follow-up from something before, Brian, and then we'll get to a joke. I had point put out a call to everyone and say, help me find some off-road trails for this uh, adventure bike thing that I got into. I didn't really get any any feedback. So I'm going to instead pay it forward to other people out there who might be listening on a ride. So some really cool apps on X off-road. You can go through and find, you just click a spot on the map and it'll show you like, here's all the 
public legal trails for you to go tear around on. And they're even rated like five out of 10 or seven out of 10 with pictures and distance and challenges. So you can decide upfront uh, whether or not you, you want to go down that path, I suppose. There's also uh, GIA, G-A-I-A, which is a similar thing. And then backcountry discovery roads, which allow you to find like, how do I traverse my state, at least in the US, or similar things in um, in Europe with the Tet. How do you say traverse all of Oregon, almost 100% off-road through the forest and the mountains and the deserts? And so there's this app that has all these like GPS trails. So anyway, I found some cool trails way up in the mountains using this app and can recommend it to people. Neat. Cool. Yeah. Cool. All right. A joke. You got a joke for us. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I can't remember where I found this, but... Um... There's a, a website called uh, um, userinyourface.com. So instead of user interface, user in your Y-E-R face.com. So you just have to fill it out. Uh, so <laughs> um, it's like a, a, an, an anti-pattern, a yeah. whole combination of anti-patterns into one UI. Okay, so just start off the right off the bat. So for people listening, is I'm sorry, you're going to have to watch this on the video or something, but or visit uh, the link or go visit the link. It says hi and welcome to user interface, um, a challenge exploration exploration of user interactions and design patterns. To play the game, simply fill fill in the form as fast and accurate as possible with a button that says no, big green button. <laughs> so it says please click underscore underlined click here to go to the next page and the next page is highlighted and the trick is the only thing that you can click on is the here button it's not a button it's just that's it um okay and then it okay the site uses cookies is that a problem for you yes and yes doesn't do anything okay no not really that goes away can we help um there's a there's a help field uh that with no enter just send the one bottom. of those dreadful chat messages that pops up <laughs> yeah it's it's great um uh do, choose your password you click on it and the 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 highlighted choose your pet or the the preview text text is already there so if you add your password to it it doesn't delete the old one you gotta like <laughs> uh fill that out oh you can't tab through anything so you have to click Oh, the email's bad too. Yeah, instead of a placeholder, it's just gray, actual gray text. Yeah, but you you also can't delete it. Um, foo, <laughs> uh, domain, foo. Oh, this one you have to delete also. And uh, uh, oh, there's a <laughs> hurry up time is ticking. A pop up, one minute of four. Um, can I hit the? Oh, the X isn't an X. It's a a maximize button. Uh, <laughs> The lock copyrights a close lock, lock unlock this doesn't do anything oh the close is the copyright right that isn't obvious um yeah okay i do i do not accept these terms okay cancel oh, oh i'm not no i meant okay uh you sure you want to cancel yeah, cancel the cancel, cancel. cancel uh next oh it's a cell already selected i do not accept so you have to <laughs> uncheck it to accept the terms and conditions what are the terms uh yeah okay good luck getting out of that dialogue oh. you got to scroll down to uh accept them now to get out of it <laughs> okay well we're stuck now uh because you can't even <laughs> okay this is terrible anyway i did get through it the fastest of time i have so far is like five minutes to, to get through people this. are gonna speed run the in your face interface 
Yeah, I'd love to see a speed run to see how fast if somebody can really get through it in like a couple minutes. Please do a video. I want to see that. Uh, so, <laughs> uh. <laughs> Jeff out in the audience says, "I worked for the company that made that site." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Love yeah, it. the company looks like Veerheart. So nice. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, that's enough uh, frustration for one day. Um, Indeed. Thanks again for joining us and uh, doing another Python Bytes. Thank you, everybody, for watching and listening and supporting us through uh, the courses and books and everything. So, And Patreon supporters. We still have Patreon supporters. Thank you, Patreon supporters. Uh, Absolutely. And thanks, Michael. Thanks, Brian. Bye. Bye.